0: A MAGIC GREEN BOX, IT SITS OUT IN MY DRIVEWAY, IT'S AMAZING, I CAN TAKE ALL THE GARBAGE IN MY HOUSE AND PUT IT IN IT, AND, and Thomasville's IS THE FIRST PLACE I'VE EVER EXPERIENCED THIS, USUALLY YOU HAVE TO TAKE YOUR GARBAGE TO THE, TO THE, TO THE, YOU KNOW, THE CURB, AND YOU KNOW, GARBAGE MEN COME ALONG AND THEY TAKE IT AWAY FROM US, AND, BUT I HAVE THIS MAGIC GREEN BOX, ABOUT THIS BIG, IT'S GOT THIS HOOD ON IT, AND I NEVER TOUCH IT, EXCEPT, I JUST PUT STUFF IN IT. And this green box, just every Monday, I notice at the end of the day, it's empty. It's amazing. Do you have one of these? (laughs) A lot of times we think of uh, our past in those terms. We We want to just put it into the bin and we want it to just sort of magically disappear right? It just, it's gone, right? And, and, and a lot of times we think of our faith that way, that, that what forgiveness is, is the sea of forgetfulness. And you've probably heard people say this, that, 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 that you're to drop your sin in the sea of forgetfulness and your past into the sea of forgetfulness and that, that God has posted a sign that says no fishing. And that's, that's very encouraging. And in some ways it's true that God's forgiveness is also forgetfulness. And maybe a month ago we talked about that. But I think we're missing something if we decide that that's the extent of our interaction with the past. You see, I, I think it's more like the past is compost. And so instead of putting, putting things into the bin that, that magically disappear or just hauled away, or dropped into the sea of forgetfulness, we are called to be a confessing people we're called to put words onto our life experiences the whole range of them so that god can make good use of them to us in the future the past is to be compost so like a compost pile. Maybe some of you all have, have seen this. And I, I wonder, by the way, I wonder if, if people who live closer to the land, who, people who farm, people who garden, people who uh, once upon a time, everyone, I think, was this way, you know, nothing went to waste. There was no waste. You, you took, you know, tea bags and you, and, and you took banana peels, and you took eggshells and you threw them into this pile. And, and, and over the course of time, it turned into this rich, yes, gross, wormy, but this sludge that then would become the most uh, uh, fertilizing, richest additive for the next season of fruit. I said to to Skylar this morning, I said, the summer is about going through the Psalms and recognizing that fruit comes from the past, that the past is compost. And he said, well, future is fruit, right? So that's the summer. Past is compost, future is fruit. You see, what the the Psalms are all about is confession. As I said earlier, confession is not just simply saying those things that we want God to forgive us from. Confession can be the Apostles' Creed. Whether it's a high or a low, whether it's a failure or a triumph, we're called to put our experiences into words so that what? SO THAT WE CAN OWN THEM, TAKE RESPONSIBILITY FOR THEM, AND AS A RESULT, LEARN AND GROW FROM THEM. SO OVER THE COURSE OF THE SUMMER, WHAT I'M HOPING THAT WE'LL DO AS WE GO THROUGH EACH OF THESE VARIOUS KINDS OF PSALMS, PSALMS OF LAMENT, PSALMS OF PRAISE, MESSIANIC PSALMS, PROPHETIC PSALMS, THAT WHAT WE'LL SEE IS THAT WHEN WE CONFESS OUR LIFE EXPERIENCE BEFORE GOD whether it is praise, lament, or sorrow over our own sin, that God is standing ready not just to throw things into the sea of forgetfulness, but to use our experience as compost for future fruit. This morning, let's consider this first step in naming, putting words on life experience by recognizing that we learn this very early on. When we learn to pray, God is great, and God is good. From the word of God, Psalm 118, verses 1 through 4, and then flipping to the end of the psalm, verses 19 through 29. Hear God's word this morning. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say. You see that? Let Israel say. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Verse 19. Open to me, The gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate, the gate of the Lord. The righteousness shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God. And I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let us pray. God bless us now through your word, not only to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts to receive it, that in our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. God is great. God is good. It's one of the earliest prayers that anyone learns. And then life happens. A tsunami hits Indonesia. Katrina hits the Gulf Coast. Another hurricane sweeps through and mows down churches and and houses in Iron City and we wonder If God is great, is he good? If God is good, is he great? There are times in life where the absence of the good makes us feel as though God may be absent as well. Now, we have to recognize that sometimes people on purpose sort of cling on to their disappointment or they look at the way things happen and wish they hadn't happened that way and they decide that... There is no God. They decide that if there is a God, that that perhaps he's great, but he's not good. And we know that, that, that there are times that when we do this or when we see other people doing this, that what they're trying to do, more often than not, is simply extricate themselves from responsibility, from being under someone else's authority, shifting life onto a foundation, that is of their own design, their own building. And so we we have to recognize this is nevertheless a sincere question because we do face a broken world. We face all kinds of injustice. And so you have to wonder, if, if facing the incongruence of how we want things to be with the way things really are, how do we know where is God? And how do we How do we affirm and confess that God is great and God is good in the midst of injustice? Martin Luther King, Jr., in his letter from a a Birmingham jail, he he helps us with this. He says, whenever we face injustice, we recognize it because there's something within our heart, mind, soul, and strength that cries out that there is a higher standard. It's, It's a little like this. Uh, it, it, you know, maybe you look at a door frame and you think, oh, that looks pretty straight. And then you hold a plumb line up to it and you see whether it's straight or not. Why would we, you have to, you have to say, when, when someone asks the question, why is there evil in the world if there is a God? How could he allow these things to happen? The next most important question to ask that person is, where did you get the idea that there was something wrong? Where did you get the idea that there was a higher standard? What plumb line are you looking at to see that things are crooked? You know, we've lived in our house long enough for us to discover that, um, that some things were built good enough. Have you discovered this in your own house? Or maybe in the it was kind of like 20 years. I think 20 years is the mark where things that were good enough begin to show up, right? Like that whole. Hallway that the lights don't work in and we just keep discovering the way they were wired wasn't it was good enough for 20 years It was good enough Good enough isn't good enough when it comes to human life to the efficacy of it to morality that underpins it and So it bears witness even in the brokenness of this world it bears witness that there is a higher standard. When we face injustice, there is something that calls out to us that says there's something wrong here. There's a standard that's not being met. And so even in the most accusing question, where is God when we hurt? Where is God in the brokenness? It still bears witness. The question itself says there's a higher good. There's a good and great God. And so then we have to pivot and ask ourselves this question then. How do we know that God is both great and good? And here's the answer. The reason we know this is because only free people, only free people have the risk and the reward of learning how to love God back. Only free people can learn to be capable of, of unconditional love, but there's a risk and there's a reward to that freedom. There's a risk to freedom. And the risk is, by the way, that was a hint, we're going, that's where we're going. We're going to talk about the risk, we're going to talk about the reward, all right? And it answers the question, how do we know that God is both great and good? Because he's given us the freedom. And with the freedom is the risk. The risk of what? The risk of disordered love. That's how St. That's how Augustine puts, uh, puts it in terms of defining what sin is or brokenness or human, the human condition. It's simply this, disordered love. That's the risk of freedom. If we're not going to be puppets, where God just simply simply pulls the strings and we respond, if we're not going to be puppets but fully independent beings capable of becoming dependent again in a powerful and personal and unconditional way to respond to God the way he has responded to our need, then we have to have the risk of freedom. Now, here's an example of what happens in this risk of freedom where we disorder love. In other words, we order love around ourselves. We begin to try to manipulate life, the universe, and everything to, to revolve around us. And just in the past couple of weeks, there was a, a story that came out, an, a, a news, an article that, that was based on some research of who were the happiest couples. Were they couples that, that were just sort of in serial monogamy? Were they uh, couples that, that, uh, that were just sort of playing the field, as they say? Well, they discovered through this, this national survey that the happiest couples were the long-term monogamous committed couples. <laughs> and this stirred up controversy, which I find very amusing. This was very controversial. People reacted to it. They began to say, well, this is skewed research, or this is, this is pretext. You know, this is somebody who just wants us to line up with traditional values again. And, and, and a lot of it was just blathering irrationality. And yet... Isn't it amazing that, that when you look at the way people respond to surveys like this, that there is this emerging pattern as if there were a design for the way that we're to live? You see, what what what, what I'm talking about here is is the psalm, Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a psalm that describes what happens when we begin to Build life around a different order, to reorder life according to our own program and plan. Psalm 118, verse 22 says, The stone which the builders rejected, the keystone which the builders rejected, has become the chief of the corner. Now, in this room, there is a little notch here that you see. That's that's a keystone. And if that archway were made of stones, then that keystone would be the key to the archway having integrity continuing to to hold uh... the the rest of the structure and to hold its shape now did you know that the keystone was made first in in ancient buildings and in ancient masonry the masons were the engineers they were the nasa crew of their age and uh, let me prove it to you so when i was in in, in Durham, England, for a, a semester studying, I, there, was a, there was a beautiful cathedral there that I learned all about. And I looked at one of the columns. It's called a compound column, this huge column. And it had this pattern on it that looked like a beehive. And that was pretty impressive in and of itself until I learned how it was built. That every stone in that compound column that, by the way, was supporting this huge vaulted ceiling, entirely made of stone and had been since 1066. That this column was made of stones and the pattern, the beehive pattern, was carved into each individual stone out in a field just lying out there. Does that not blow you away? And so, I mean, I can't even solve the Rubik's Cube, you know? I can't even figure out my schedule for the summer, which is harder than a Rubik's Cube, I think and here is this group of masons that use their engineering prowess to to, to carve into each one of these stones that when when they put this column together it will look like this art and yet support for century upon century this vaulted ceiling see what's happening here is this exact same scenario is in play that there is a messiah in the Old Testament and he is to be the capstone, the keystone, designed by God in the beginning to be a suffering servant, to be recognized when he came. Unless, of course, you're building an archway that's based on a different plan, a plan that's not really biblical, a plan that says, well, we'd rather have a conquering king. We'd rather have a a, a political hero, a military hero than, than someone who is going to to fit with the program of this sacrificial system, someone who would be a humble servant. And so they rejected that stone. And they built their plan, their archway, and they built a keystone to fit fit the archway rather than the archway of the temple system and, and their faith and their community and the ordering of love according to the ultimate sacrifice for love. God while we were yet sinners died for us and so there's a risk to freedom that we would order life around our own plan that we would build the archway according to our own will and design and begin to manipulate our circumstances to revolve around us there's a risk of freedom and the consequences we know we know from watching other people do this the consequences are the continued brokenness of the human condition, but there's also the potential reward, reward to freedom, and that is to learn to order our loves again, to order life and love around the love, the unconditional love of God. It is to say, to confess, to put into words, there is a God. And it is not me. You know, it's a little like this. When, when my kids were young, they used to, to say, I'm thirsty. Now, but they would say it in such a voice and at such a pitch that would, would trigger within me a reaction to fulfill the request, implied request, as fast as I could. In the pain, in my ears, right? Now, so you've experienced this, some of you. I'M THIRSTY, AND I WOULD PAUSE, SO, so SOME PARENTS, and, AND SOMETIMES WE WERE THESE KINDS OF PARENTS, AND SOMETIMES WE WEREN'T, WE'D PAUSE AND SAY, WHAT WOULD WE SAY? I, I WOULD SAY, um, USE YOUR WORDS. YOU DON'T KNOW THIS? OKAY, USE YOUR WORDS, RIGHT? SO INSTEAD OF SAYING, I'M THIRSTY, WE WOULD SAY, um, MAY I HAVE A DRINK OF WATER, <laughs> RIGHT? SO THAT'S TO CONFESS SOMETHING, THAT, that YOU DO WANT SOMETHING, BUT but to make a request, use your words. What happens when we use our words? Matthew 16, 18 tells us what happens when we use our words. This, the rest of the story of the stone that w- the builders was, that, that, that the builders rejected, the keystone that was rejected and th- cast aside. What's the rest of the of the story here? Well, read the next verse. It has become the chief cornerstone this is the Lord's doing it is marvelous in our eyes this is the day the Lord has made a lot of times we think of it as Sunday right No, this is the day of the Lord the new day the new age he's bringing in Matthew 16 18 is the place where Jesus says who do you say that I am and Peter says you are the Christ the son of the living god. And Jesus says, "Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. I I will no longer call you Simon, you'll now be called the rock. And on this rock I will build my church." Do you see how love gets reordered? Do you see how the stone that the builders rejected in the very place of that rejection In the very place of trying to order life around ourselves, God says mercifully, I will be Lord in your life. You see, our our plan of self-esteem these days, how is that working for us? You see, when we we try to feel better about ourselves, constantly try to just be on this self-improvement plan... Every day we wake up to a new courtroom and a new verdict do we not And yet the freedom that God brings by speaking this word this building life on this stone of forgiveness we have the ability to look at life experiences and to name them for what they are to confess highs and lows and when we use our words something happens we begin to take ownership of our experiences we begin to take responsibility for the highs and lows we begin to name the thing that continues to intrude in your relationships and in your work life and in the quiet moments of your of your, of your own countenance your own quiet meditation the accusing voices when we put into words our experience, we begin to take ownership and responsibility of our past and God begins to to use the past as compost to bring love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, confession is good for the soul because confession is good for the soil past is compost so that future can be fruit. Let's, play. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you've been equal to our need. And as a result, you've made it possible and powerful for us to reorder our loves. God, would you continue to express your own love to us, that we may respond in kind. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.